0: All right. Well, thanks uh, so much, Sean, for being with us today. Um, as, as everyone probably knows, Sean is, uh, Sean is my uncle. And I'll just say from personal experience that uh, Sean was always the fun uncle. He was also a very uh, supportive uncle. He's a great dad. You know, professionally, he's an executive at Franklin Covey. And the reason why I wanted to invite Sean um, on this podcast is Sean obviously didn't write seven habits of highly effective people. That was uh, my grandfather, Stephen R. Covey, but Sean has been involved with the seven habits work for the past 20, 25 years, um, has written seven habits of highly effective teens, um, seven habits of happy kids, seven habits for college students. So he's been heavily involved in this Has probably written and thought more about this than anyone outside of my grandfather who passed away in 2012. So, um, and then, actually, Sean, you just recently released the uh, the thirtieth edition of the Seven Habits. Um, yeah. You, you didn't uh, you didn't add it or you didn't take away from anything my grandpa wrote, but you did add some some insights recently about uh, that. Can maybe can you maybe talk about what that experience was like releasing the the thirtieth yeah. anniversary edition?
1: Yeah. Sure. So good to be on your show, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, thanks for inviting <laughs> me. And, yeah, so this is this is a copy of that book right here. And, and every, uh, every five to ten years, we've tried to just refresh the book in some way. We haven't changed any of Stephen's words, but we've added things and new insights and that kind of thing. So uh, a year ago, the publisher came to me and just said, we'd like you, to, for the 30th anniversary edition, we'd like you to add insights to it. I said, no, I have no interest. I'm not going to. This is like the Bible. <laughs> I'm not going to touch it. Um, and they said, they asked me again. I said, no, I said no for six months. And then uh, I really had no interest. I thought this is a, this is such a great book. And then, uh, they asked again and kept kind of twisting my arm. And finally, I, I, I thought about it for the first time and I thought, well, okay, I don't want to change one thing Steven said, cause it's a masterpiece and it still is one of the best-selling books in the marketplace right now, still on top 10 lists. 30 years after it was published, which is unbelievable, it hasn't slowed down at all. But then I thought about it, and I thought, you know, I know so many stories about how seven habits have impacted people personally and organizationally and how it's being used in the military and how it's being used in government and in education and with equine therapy and in prisons. These principles are so practical. I should share some of these stories. And I thought, what would what would dad say if he were here? <laughs> I thought you'd say, "Do it! You, yeah, this 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 will be great. You you've got some great stories to show, and to share." And so, so that's why I ended up doing it. It was a took a long time. I added about seventy pages. It's just like color commentary at the end of each chapter. I talk about. Let me tell you about Habit One and how it influenced an organization in Thailand. Um, let me talk to you, to you about Habit Four and how it's influenced my life and the research behind think win, win. And, you know, so I, I feel like it, it, it's okay. And it worked out pretty good. And so that's, that's what I did there. It's, it's all contained in this new edition.
0: Awesome. No, it's (laughs) great. And I, I, I reviewed it just recently and thought the insights you added to it were great. Again, you didn't, you didn't uh, take away anything from what, what my grandfather wrote, but you added some great insight Made a little more relevant to today's world, so yeah. one thing I wanted to start off with Sean is as as you know, this podcast is all around the idea of paradigms and and talking about um, right. how how books can give us new paradigms and something that always struck me growing up whenever I heard my grandfather talk he he would always start us teaching off talking about paradigms and how important they were, so I'm wondering if you might be able to share little bit about what what is a paradigm? Why are they so important in our lives? Sure.
1: Yeah. Well, a paradigm is the lens through which you see the world, and we're all full of biases and prejudices and past experiences that shape our paradigm. It's like you know, pair of glasses, and what you see here is invisible to you. What you're seeing through it's, but it's impacting everything you're seeing. And so, Stephen. Uh, your grandfather, my dad, uh, Papa, as we called him, would talk about this all the time, didn't he? And he'd always say, you don't get it. You guys, you spend way too much time talking about behaviors. It has nothing to do with behavior. It's got to see differently. And he always talked about how you need to put on, uh, educate yourself so you, your paradigm becomes clear so you can see the world clearly. You can see yourself clearly. And so the seven habits are all about paradigms. It's about shifting paradigms and saying, You know what? Uh, An incorrect paradigm is to think that you are who you are because of circumstance, because of your genes and background and things that have happened to you. The truer paradigm is you are you because of choices. Right. Um, So he's always getting people to shift paradigms and to think differently. But uh, they're so powerful. And, you know, one of the great paradigm shifts he shares in the book, uh, the seven habits book is when one time he was in New York and he had to give a speech and uh, he gave a speech and he had to go to the other side of town to give another speech. He jumped on the subway and he was tired and he said he sat down to get a little bit of rest, you know, while I was going to his next speech and put his head down and at one of the stops, a man came on with a couple of his kids and he said, uh, the man sat down and just, you know, looked away and his kids ran up and down the subway car we disturbing everybody, just being really loud and obnoxious. My dad said, I was, I was trying to control my temper, but these kids were just so annoying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had lots of kids, too. I was one of them. But he was getting really kind of annoyed. He was trying to focus. And he said, at one point, one of the kids came and grabbed a man's newspaper and threw it on the ground while he was reading it. And finally, my dad couldn't stand it anymore. And he walked over to the man. He said, excuse me, sir, but have you noticed that your kids are really disturbing people? Perhaps you could could, you could control them. And the man uh, looked up like he was noticing for the first time what was going on. And he said, oh, yeah, I should. I'm so sorry. We just came from the hospital where their mother just died. And I don't know how to handle this. And neither do they. And my father, he said instantly paradigm shift. Right. You saw it correctly. Situation instantly. Oh, I'm so sorry, sir. What could I do? Could I help with the children at all? I'm so sorry. And so he he talks about that and how his attitude, he didn't have to work on his behavior anymore. He didn't have to work on having a good attitude and patience. Um, That just naturally flowed out of seeing the situation correctly. And that's the power of a, a paradigm shift is if you see things correctly, then suddenly the behaviors flow naturally. You don't have to fight it. It just it happens just spontaneously. And, you know, so in management, he always just felt like managers need a paradigm shift. They got to get out of this control and command. And I'm the boss mentality to one of, you know, what my job is to be a servant leader. My job is to empower, to unleash. You've got greatness in you. I've got to empower you. Um, and so, you know, that was one of his big paradigm shifts is we've got to develop this whole person paradigm of people that, you know, people are capable and leadership is communicating to another person, their worth and potential. So clearly they're inspired to see it in themselves. Right. That was his definition of leadership, but all around a paradigm of release versus control, you know, so the seven habits book is just full of paradigms and uh, and paradigm shifts and how we need to think differently and how, if we do that, the the habits will come more naturally Um, In the book, I share a personal experience of a paradigm shift I had with my son, Nathan. Nathan now is in college. When he was really young, he was the shyest kid you've ever seen. Um, He had social anxiety off the charts. Uh, I remember, you know, he wouldn't participate in anything. He'd never speak in public. Um, he would hide under his desk whenever he got scared of anything. And it's really embarrassing. <laughs> and one time, um, I remember taking him, uh, to school and I, you know, going to school was an event every day to try to get him to go. He'd go, he went about every other day for the first three or four years. Wow. And one time in second grade, we were at school, got the parking lot out front. I said, okay, I'm going to walk you in now. And he said, no, I'm not going. He grabbed onto the chair and um, I tried to I tried to pull him off. I, I'm in the car seat. I tried to pull him off. Finally, I had to rip his fingers off one by one. I threw him over my shoulders, handed him to the principal. who had come out to the parking lot because he knew this daily struggle we went through. <laughs> and he picked up Nathan. Nathan was slugging the principal on his back <laughs> as he was carrying him in. And I got into my car and I cried. I thought, oh, my gosh, this kid, what am I going to do? A couple months later, I persuaded him to sign up for baseball and um, second grade team. We go to the first practice. He gets out of the car, sees the coach and the other players Gets so nervous. He falls on the ground and plays dead. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) He just laid down on the ground and said, Nathan, Nathan, I mean, we're at practice. Come on. I went over and got the coach thinking the coach will be able to get him up. Coach comes over. Hey, it's coach Smith, Nathan. I'm your, I'm your baseball coach. Hey, uh, welcome to the team. Lays there. Uh, nothing. No no sound, no movement. Coach spent two minutes with them, gave up, went back to coach the team. I sat there, went back into my car. Nathan laid there for an hour. Practice ended. He looked around. No one was around. He jumped into the car. And I just shook my head and thought, this kid has got problems, and he's not going <laughs> to amount to anything. <laughs> I had a negative paradigm of him. I did, and it was frustrating, and I was struggling. I remember uh, a few months later, we went to a football game the uh, next fall, and he was sitting in, to the side of me, and he kept kicking the seat in front of him. The person in front looks back and says to me, Would you please tell your kid to stop doing that? And I was so upset with Nathan, his being is so annoying. And all this was in the back of my head, my frustration with him. I reached over and I s- squeezed his arm. And I said, stop it like that. And I looked at his face and he just wilted um, from just my anger. And I just felt this overwhelming sense of shame and guilt. And I looked at this little kid and then it just came to me in a flood of epiphany. This is an amazing young boy. You have no idea who he is. How dare you think of him or treat him like this? And it was like my conscience, you know, was clear for the first time. And I could see how I was labeling him. I could see what it did to him. I just sat back in my chair and I wilted. I didn't really watch the rest of the game. And it was such a powerful experience. It's like an immediate paradigm shift of, this kid's got greatness in him and stopped thinking him that, of, the, of him that way. And I went home and I told Rebecca, my wife, about it. And I said, he's going to be okay. Um, we are causing this. I'm causing this from the way I'm treating him. And he can feel it and it's being communicated. And let's instead um, think of him differently and, and remember what he can become and believe in that and see that and treat him accordingly. And we did. And I started working with him. I saying, I know you've got this social anxiety. Let's work on it. And we got this good relationship going around how he wanted to turn a weakness into a strain. And it started working. He started, he started feeling my energy, and my paradigm towards him, of one of belief. And then it was a year later, he was asked to speak at school, leader in me school where they teach the seven habits. And he came home and he goes, dad, they just asked me to speak at leadership day, there's like 200 people there. It's because you're the seven habits guy. They asked me, (laughs) I'm not doing this. Get me out. (laughs) So I thought, well, maybe I should, because maybe he'll play dead. (laughs) Right. But I kept with it. And he, he, he actually prepared. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know what was going to happen. He stands up on, um, this was his fourth grade year. Now he stood up in front of the class, about 200 people. And he, gave a little speech on habit five at one point about a minute into the speech he paused he couldn't remember what to say he panicked you could see him his eyes were going like this he caught hold of himself and he finished and he did a great job and got a big ovation and uh, he came home and he was so proud of himself and, uh, and then he volunteered to speak at church he volunteered <laughs> to sing publicly and he just um Over time, he became the most outgoing, vivacious life of the party kid you've ever seen with tons of compassion for others because he went through this as a kid. Right. But uh, his weakness became his strength. And I believe so much of it came because my wife and I, and especially me, had a paradigm shift and chose to see him differently. And a paradigm manifests itself in so many ways. So the idea is. Um, if you want to change, minor change, if you want to make a minor change in your life, you know, shift your behaviors. If you want to really make major changes in your life, shift your paradigm, see differently. How do you see differently? You you come to podcasts like this, right? This is your point of this podcast is to shift paradigms. People see differently and the behaviors naturally change just like they did in the subway. So
0: that's great. Thanks, Sean. And, and I can attest. I I know Nathan, uh my cousin, and yeah. and uh knew him growing up and it, it's true. Like he is one of the greatest people to be around um these days, has so much positivity and empathy, like you said, you would have never known that he that he went through something like that. But that's the, yeah. the funniest story I've ever heard of him playing dead. <laughs> that is that is so funny. But not...
1: we were reading some bear bugs. Um that summer, and I thought that's the only thing you do if you're you're in a bad situation, play dead It's
0: <laughs> actually really smart that is that is so great, but I think that's a a great both that story and then the story of uh of my grandpa papa on the on the bus of having having a paradigm shift another way he he used to talk about it um mm. was like comparing it to a tree with the the roots and the trunk kind of being the paradigms and then the your attitudes and behaviors being the branches and the leaves and kind of this idea that it flows out of out of the roots and that's what the paradigm that that's what a paradigm is so it's Yeah. yeah it's just it's just powerful powerful teaching that's that's why i wanted this episode to be the first one um because I think paradigms is so much around what what we're trying to do on this podcast right. um, and then right. and then the other the other big thing, so he'd always talk about paradigms, and he'd always talk about principles how how do principles relate to paradigms, and you know yeah I guess I guess maybe talk a little bit about how principles relate to it
1: sure, yeah, so yeah, principles are natural laws, and uh Stephen was big on. Saying, you know, there's certain natural laws. It's just the way the world works and the way people work. And the key is to identify them and to align yourself to them. So principles are things like responsibility is a principle. It's a natural law. It's if you live by the by being a responsible person, good things will happen. If you don't, they won't, right? Um, initiative. Uh, Not waiting for things to happen but making them happen is a principle. Um, Vision, you know, thinking ahead and plotting and planning for the future is a principle. Prioritization, um, abundance, you know, instead of thinking scarcity, thinking abundantly is a principle. Mutual benefit, hard work, service, love, renewal. These are natural laws, principles, and so he was just always, uh, he always felt like you've got to get your paradigms as accurate as possible so you can see the world cl- clearly. And you've got to um, align your life with principles align your paradigm with correct principles. And principles are different than values. Values are things like you can value principles, like. but values um, sometimes are the same as principles, sometimes they're different. So a, a gang of thieves could have values. One of their values could be, we, value not snitching on each other right and we value um you know getting ahead of our competitors or whatever so you can have values that are not aligned to correct principles so principles are different that way and and see when you always say you know what if you're an organization you've got to abide by correct principles um and you'll always prosper if you do and if you're an individual same thing and as a team same thing so he felt like um They were just foundational to everything, right? Correct principles and, uh, accurate paradigms.
0: Yeah, that's great. And then, um, one more thing I wanted, I wanted to talk about when my understanding, and maybe you can add some more, some more light to this. Um, my grandpa, he used to be a a university professor before he wrote seven habits. And my understanding is, uh, The seven habits evolved over time as far as he he knew the basic principles, but then the seven habits came together in this sequential framework that he kind of put together. So he never never claimed that he invented the principles (laughs) or anything. He just kind of uncovered them and packaged them in this sequential framework that was really powerful and really took hold. But I liked hearing about when he was going through this kind of, he did like this deep study where he looked at all the literature as far as like self-improvement, um, in, in the United States history. And he noticed something, uh, you know, the personality ethic versus the character ethic. And I I love kind of hearing about that process he went through. So I wonder, Sean, if you might share a little bit about that process, what is the personality ethic? What is the character ethic?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So when he was a a professor, that's another story about how he was, he was trained actually to be a a hotel manager by his father who ran a hotel and his grandfather who ran a hotel. And he said, I don't want to run a hotel. I want to be a teacher. (laughs) So he became a teacher. He became a professor. And in his studies as a professor, while he was getting his doctorate, uh, He studied 200 years of American literature, success literature. Um, And he he noticed the first 100 years was all about character. These principles we're talking about, uh, integrity, honesty, hard work, uh, building solid relationships, and so forth. And that was the general essence of all the literature. And then he said the next 100 years, it started shifting. It started changing to personality how you look, how you wear your hat, how to negotiate, how to shake hands in the right way. Um, Things that were more surfacy, more personality based. And he called that, you know, the personality ethic compared to the character ethic. In fact, the original name of the seven habits book, Stephen, was going to be called the character ethic, restoring the character ethic. But then he found the seven habits was catchier.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) but that's how that's what he studied. And he and he said, you know, we got to return to character. We got to return to these principles. We got to get away from the facade of personality and technique and back to these basic natural laws and, and to, to live accordingly. Right. So that's where it all started. And I, you know, so I grew up in the seven habits home and people ask me all the time, what was it like? Uh, and, you know, I was lucky to have a good dad and a good mom. And like, you know, I hope many people listening to this podcast do as well. Uh, But Stephen, my dad was always trying to teach us principles before he had named the seven habits. And I watched these evolve because there were, he called them basic habits at one point and there were five and then it were nine. And then he eventually settled in on seven. So this was constantly evolving, but the ideas were always there. For example, I'd come home from work or I'd come home from school as a kid and I'd say, my teacher stinks. I'm going to flunk algebra, dad. He's the worst. I hate him. It's his fault. And he'd say, okay, calm down, calm down. Uh, just kind of watch your language, Sean, because you're saying you're going to flunk algebra and it's his fault. It's called being a victim, right? And uh, if you have a problem with your teacher, don't talk about him. Talk behind his back. Go talk with him and and uh, talk about, you know, some problems that, that you're seeing in the class. And I'm like, serious dad, no one would do that. Like, Where's mom. <laughs> and then I'd go talk with mom and she'd let me blame other people for my problems, you know? <laughs> so we always used to say as kids, dad is always loyal to principles, the right thing. And mom is always loyal to you, whether you're right or wrong. Yeah. So it was a good balance. It's a good balance, but yeah, I mean, this was his life's work and he just, After all these years of studying and research, he just said, you know what? Like you said, I didn't discover these principles. I just named them and packaged them in common vernacular and synthesized. The brilliance of what Stephen did is he synthesized this whole area of human development and effectiveness and self-development. He synthesized and sequenced it. And it's a brilliant um, discovery, breakthrough. Um, I, I've I've always said I consider the seven habits a scientific breakthrough in the social, emotional, behavioral sciences. Just like there are breakthroughs in other areas of science and in computer technology, I, I feel like what Stephen did for the Seven Habits um, was basically making personal effectiveness easy to use. And this is why it has such sticking power globally. And in the forward to the book. Um, Jim Collins, you know, who wrote Good to Great, one of the greatest management thinkers of our time, right? Uh, he, we asked him to write the forward. and he did, and he studied the Seven Habits book again, and he just, he said, what Stephen did for uh, personal effectiveness is similar to what Bill Gates and Steve Jobs did for the personal computer. They made it accessible and easy to use, right? And Stephen made personal effectiveness accessible and easy to use by Putting it into these habits, be proactive, begin with the end in mind, think win win, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Um, He synthesized 200 years of the best thinking around self improvement, right? And sequenced it and made it easy to use. And that's why, again, it's being so widely used around the world from Fortune 100 companies uh, to elementary schools. Now it's now being used in thousands of elementary middle high schools across the world it's really exciting to see but you know that's that's the essence of back to your original question of you know steven's work started with his 200 year study evolved into you know finding these habits, discovering these habits and um and publishing all of his works
0: i personally feel like in today's world um we're we're still dealing with a lot of the the personality ethic right the the appearance and surface level stuff and I feel like it's affecting my generation a lot right now with social media where it's yeah. it's just all uh, it's all it, a lot of it is just kind of appearance based and and surface level not kind mm-hmm. of the deep character and and that's not to say that that having good skills and and knowing how to negotiate and stuff is important because. 'Cause that is important. But I think my grandpa's point with this was that there's something there's something deeper there of of character. And I, I think that's why Seven Habits will always be relevant. You know, it was written 30 years ago, 1989, but I think it will continue to be relevant forever because it's, you know, it's touching on these principles and these and these paradigms.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Um So maybe just, we'll just talk maybe a a couple more things before, before we sign off. Um, One, obviously we have to talk about the seven habits themselves, but I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about the maturity continuum, which, which I think is kind of one of the paradigms that, that, that uh, my grandpa gave us this idea of the maturity continuum and how the seven habits fit within that, that framework of the maturity continuum.
1: Yeah. Well, so most people don't know this. When he wrote The Seven Habits, he finished the book. And Stephen said to his staff, I have to rewrite it. They said, what? Yep, I just had a new insight. What do you mean? We got to publish this. Our business is at stake. He said, I had a new insight. The sequence is more important than I thought. I have a new paradigm about the importance of the sequence in The Seven Habits. Private victories precede public victories. And I have to rewrite it with that frame of reference. And so he did. Um, but he, you know, the seven habits aren't just another seven, this or that. The sequence is vital. First three habits um, he calls the private victory. And it's the idea that you move from the maturity continu- continuum that you referenced is moving from dependence to becoming independent. And then once you're independent, you can then become interdependent. Working well with others. And so the first three habits help you become independent. They are, you know, being proactive. I'm in charge. I'm responsible, beginning with the end in mind. This is what's important to me. This is where I'm headed. This is my path. Putting first things first. I got to make sure that my path is being executed. That what's most important to me is getting the right, proper time and attention. If I can take charge of who I am, take initiative, be responsible, have a vision and be managing my time around it, I become more effective. I become more independent of other people. And that's a really good thing. I'm in a state of being where now I am an independent person. I can choose my own weather. I'm not subject to how people treat me necessarily, right? I'm not going to let someone ruin my day by saying something rude to me. I'm an independent person. That's a really good thing. But he always taught that a lot of people end there. And life is a team sport. <laughs> you got to play well with others. So he said, interdependence is a much higher level of being than independence. And so he said, you know, to do that, you got to think win-win. Um, mutual benefit. I care about me, and I care about you just as much. And together, we can do great things. And it's not about me stepping on you, and it's not about me getting stepped on by another person. I'm the bad I'm – the, I'm the good guy – I'm the nice guy. Everyone has their way with me. Everyone steps on me. Let's lose win. That's not strong either. He said the foundation of getting along well with others is to think mutual benefit. I want you to win. I want to win too. Let's do it together. And then seek first to understand, then to be understood. Habit five. Key to influence is to first be influenced yourself. And the power of listening is the most important communication skill of all. So mutual benefit. I wanna understand you before I share how I see things. That's then seek to be understood. And then we can synergize, which is the idea of one plus one can equal three. I have got my strength, you've got yours. Let's create something better together than we could alone. Valuing differences is so important with all the tension you see right now in society. Um, This is, this demon was far ahead of his time saying value differences. The racial, ethnic, um social, emotional, um experiential differences that we all have and value them um and don't and see them as complements, not threats, and that together with differences, you can create something that doesn't exist currently. I always you always said there are third alternatives to everything. Um, you see the you know some of the wars were going uh, going on on different topics, and Stephen's thing was, you know what, there's a third alternative that's better than what both of you have in mind right now. If you can work together, value each other's differences, you can create it, right? That's synergy. And then that will get you to become interdependent. So you move up this maturity level. And he said, effective, mature people, they have their act together and they know how to get, get along well with other people. They're not perfect, of course. And he always said, I struggle with these habits as well. But um, that's how you become an effective person. So the sequence matters. Every habit, the private before the public, and every habit before the other habit are sequential for a reason. Then habit seven circles all the other habits, and it's sharpened the saw. And it's around the concept of never be too busy driving to take time to get gas, right? (laughs) And you've got a body, a mind, a heart, and a spirit. They all need to be nurtured on a regular basis, or your saw is dull and you're, you lose your temper and you're not keeping yourself fit and you're not learning and growing. And it's just a, a state of entropy, right? If you don't sharpen the saw entropy kicks in, uh, it doesn't matter what age you're at. And so that's the maturity continuum. And that's how, that's how the whole thing works together.
0: Before any of the podcasts I do, I really try to to study the books, um, beforehand as much as I can and 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 uh, reading through this again I was struck by um, Papa's definition of what effectiveness is and yeah. and about effectiveness it's not just you know because sometimes when people talk to me they'll say oh Stephen Covey like did you write seven habits of highly successful people and I always want to correct them and say it's actually highly effective people because there's a yeah. there's a difference between the idea of where you could be successful in one area of your life, maybe in your business, but, but not successful in another area. So, his, his idea was that effectiveness is all about having the balance, right? So, that you're this, like you talked about in Habit 7, the whole person, the body, heart, mind, spirit, that there's a balance, that a truly effective person um, is effective, not just at work, but also with his family, with relationships, with friends. And I also think that's another paradigm shift in a way where th- there's so much focus on, you know, success, which usually is money. That's uh, how a lot of people think about it. There's money and, and having, uh, you know, accumulating a lot of stuff and nice cars and houses. And, and his thing was know that effectiveness is much, it's much deeper than that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Much well deeper. said. Yeah. Well said. Couldn't agree more.
0: Um. Well, cool. Well, before we wrap up there's always there's two questions that I, I ask everyone at, at the end of end of an episode yeah. um, first one is what is what is one practical action step a listener could take to apply the seven habits in their life today
1: yeah um good question I think um one that comes to mind um, immediately is just the idea of planning um, and how uh, Stephen talked about quadrants of effectiveness, right? And he he said, you got to learn to focus on things that are important, but not urgent preparation, planning, prevention, relationship building, goal setting, um, and so forth. And so one of, one of those is planning because we get so hurried in our jobs and such that um we oftentimes aren't that effective. And sometimes we can go through a week and get a lot done or work like crazy and, and look back on the week and say, I got nothing of importance done that week. So Stephen talked about the importance of weekly planning, how the week is the perfect unit of time. Um, a day is too narrow of a view. A month is too broad of a view. And a week is the, the perfect unit in which to achieve balance. And so I used to watch how dad would – plan his weeks and uh he had this little planner that uh Franklin Covey made and he used to write down his he used to plan his week really carefully like for 30 minutes he'd write down all of his roles like I'm a husband I'm a father I'm an author I'm a speaker I have a community role and I have a role to myself sharpening my saw and he'd write down he'd call them big rocks what are the few key things I have to accomplish in this role this week um And then he'd block out time in advance for those. Okay. It's kind of like the experiment you do when you're in school where they say, Hey, here's a bucket. You've got to get this sand, this gravel, these big rocks and this water into this bucket. And um, you know, if you put, if you put the sand in first and then the little gravel and uh, the big rocks, you can't fit it all in. Right. But if you put the big rocks in first, And the gravel pours in around it, the sand pours around the gravel, the water fits on top, and you can fit it all in. And that analogy he always used to say is so true about planning. You got to put the big rocks in first. So I'm, you know, I've got the role of father. Well, I need to go on a date with my daughter, my teenage daughter, on a Wednesday night. That's a big rock. I put it in first, right? So um, that's the idea. If you want to get control of your life, start planning your weeks. Uh, try it. Try it today, even though it's not maybe the end of the week or the start of the week, whenever you might be listening to this. uh, Sit down and say, what are the most important things I have to accomplish in each of my roles this week? You might come up with five or six or seven, block out time for them in advance, plan your week, figure out when you're going to exercise, figure out when you're going to do that big report you got to do at work. Um, And uh, watch the power of 30 minutes on the other 168 hours of the week if you'll take time to plan that's spoken about a lot in habit three, uh, putting first things first. And it's something that we all understand, but we fail to do often. My own experience is boy, it makes all the difference. Um, I I use paper and I use technology both. I know I break some rules there, but I just find it very helpful each week on my paper side. I, I sit down and do do the same practice. I just map out my whole week. Um, Family time, business time, uh, key things I've got to get accomplished, helps me see the big picture. So that'd be my recommendation.
0: <laughs> That's great. And then the last question is you know, imagine if you were speaking with someone one on one who was just starting off in their career or maybe early on in their career, and they asked you about success. What advice would you give them as far as what success is? and how to be successful.
1: Yeah. Um, good question. Well, my advice would be a um, couple things come to mind. One is I had uh, a mentor of mine when I first started work and um, he was much older and I'd say very successful. And he, he, I was going on a ride in his car with him and he had a really nice car and I was admiring his car <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "He said Sean, he said don't neglect your family." He said, uh, "I did for a while until it caught up to me, and I, I've now made adjustments. So I'm not doing it anymore." But he said, um, "Don't don't balance your family while you're trying to ex- excel at work. Don't neglect your family." Um, I said, "Yeah, yeah, I know." He goes, "No, I mean it. I mean it. I don't think you know." It's so easy to get, get caught up into, into success and achievement at work. And I don't think you know. I'm just warning you. Uh, you cannot do that. It's not worth it. I paid the price for it. And it uh, really hit me. And I, I've tried. and I, I feel like I've done a good job at just always prioritizing my family. And um, you know, And you can be successful at both. You can have a good personal life. Home life and business life. You don't have to do one or the other. You see people make sacrifices all the time, um, and they say, "Well, I'm, you know, I can't be successful with my family and still be successful at work, or the other way around." And you, sometimes you see people that are neglect their families or their personal health, um, and just not worth it. So I think that's one. That's one. That's one part of success is make sure you're balanced and. Um, I saw my father do this. He always put family first, but he still did everything he wanted to professionally. You can do both. Um, so that'd be one one piece. Second one would be just the idea of um, uh, hard work, and um, you know, being principle based, uh, doing it doing it the right way, just not compromising, turning corner, you know, cutting corners. Is so important. And you'll, as you get into business, into your career, every, every week, there's something where you can cheat or lie or fudge or um, turn or twist or, you know, just do something a little off color. It's just so important to keep your integrity all the time. I think that's success as well is that you can look back on your career and say, I've always been honest. When I've made mistakes, I've always apologized. Right. And then I just say, finally, just go for it. Um, don't be afraid to pursue your dreams. Uh, oftentimes, I loved how Clayton Christensen used to talk about it. He's, he'd say, you have two kinds of strategies, deliberate and emergent. A deliberate strategy is, this is my career. This is what I'm pursuing. He said, I wanted to be, Clayton said, I wanted to be the editor of the Wall Street Journal. I had that in my head, and I was on track to do that and then he suddenly i got an offer to teach at harvard business school as a young professor to be an assistant professor and he says this is called an emergent strategy sometimes a new idea you hadn't planned on comes your way <clears throat> and he said and so i did that i became a professor and then but i still wanted to be the wall street journal editor <laughs> and so i was going to do harvard just for a few years and then do that and then when i was done being a professor i wanted a guy came to me and said, I've got a startup. I want you to join. And it was a great idea. And so I joined that. And he said, and he passed away just last year. And he said, my whole life has been emergent strategies. <laughs> and he said, finally, a few years ago, I settled in and he said, no, all these emergent strategies have led me to do what I'm doing now. And this is now my deliberate strategies to continue the work I'm in right now, which is teaching and consulting and teaching about disruption. In the marketplace. Um, but be, be open to emergent strategies is what I'm saying. Have a deliberate strategy. Go for it. I want to do this. I want to get this kind of degree. And I want to do this. I want to start a business. I want to be X. Keep your family balanced. Don't compromise. But be open to emergent strategies. So my daughter, um, your cousin, Rachel, passed away eight years ago. And uh, we didn't expect this. She was 21. Uh, it was a real tragedy for our family. But out of that came an emergent strategy, which was we started this nonprofit organization that uh, helps girls that are struggling with different things develop hope, confidence, and resilience. And now it's a, it's a big nonprofit organization. It was a, an emergent idea, right? So be open to things that come your way that might knock you off the course that you're on for something better or something that's hot. It's a wave that you ride because suddenly there's a big wave and you're going to take advantage of it. So that's a long answer to your question, Stephen. Sorry. That's <laughs> but that'd out. be my advice to, to, uh, someone seeking success.
0: That's great. No, I appreciate it. Brilliant answer, Sean. Well, thanks again so much for, uh, for taking time um, to be here, Sean. I know you're, you're busy. Um, so really, really appreciate you, uh, Taking the time to be with us today.
1: Sure. So glad to be with you, Stephen.